This is Pure Murders and Mysteries. Let's talk murder. Hi everyone, welcome to Pure Murders and Mysteries, a Pure Fandom Podcast. Tonight we will be discussing the Mickey Bryan murder and conviction of Joe Bryan. But first, I'm Jasmine and with me I've got Lindy, one of the three co-founders of the Pure Fandom website, and Brad, one half of Brad and Court Talk. We are true crime obsessives and we bonded over our mutual tendencies to devolve rapidly down a rabbit hole when it comes to cold cases, mind-boggling murders, and tantalizing conspiracy theories. I thought it would be fun to kick the podcast off by telling the listeners what murder or true crime case is your favorite or is one that you're currently obsessed with. And then let's throw in one fun fact about each of us. I'll start. Uh, so, uh, like I said, I'm Jasmine. A uh, murder case I'm obsessed with um, is H.H. Holmes. I have an unnatural obsession with serial killers, and I watch Criminal Minds all the time. I actually wasn't a fan of Devil in the White City, even though I am excited for the film. But um, the whole aspect of H.H. Holmes is gruesomely fascinating. Um, But the biggest part of it that I think gets me um, like constantly going back to it is uh, his victims. They're all young women in search of employment and independent adventure. And they came to Chicago for the express purpose of leaving behind like order and respectable expectation. And unfortunately, they didn't get any of that. But still, um, I think the circumstances are super, super cool. And have you um, have you traveled around Chicago to look at his uh, the the sites where the hotel used? To I actually haven't. No, um, and I mean I live here, so I probably should do that. Um, but yeah, I haven't. That would be a cool thing to do. Good field trip. <laughs> but honestly, H. H. Holmes. I mean, he was a jerk, but he was incredibly creative. Okay, mm-hmm, the guy mm-hmm. could make some incredible floor plans. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyways, I'm Lindy, and the case that I am always the most obsessed with is the Johnny Gosh case, which Brad actually told me to look into, and I got super crazy going down the rabbit hole of that and everything to do with the Franklin cover-up, Bohemian Grove, anything related to Johnny Gosh and the Franklin cover-up, I'm super obsessed with because it pisses me off because it's all real. Mm. And mm-hmm. I'm a conspiracy nut, but it's not a conspiracy. It's all real. It's all true. Yeah, that, that was funny. When we first started talking about doing this podcast, and you were asking, you know, what case do you come to mind that you think about the most often? I was like, oh, oh Johnny yeah. Gosh. And you're like, who? And for like weeks later, you're just looking up stuff and you're down. <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. It'll get you going there for a while. I read all of the court documents, like all of the, oh. um, uh, what would you call them? The... The transcripts from all of the court trials for everyone involved with the case because I'm psycho. Oh, my Uh, God. I know. It was really (laughs) Jasmine, we missed your fun fact. I totally cut off your fun fact. Oh, um, I actually couldn't think of one except for... um, So I have a twin sister, and she just moved up from St. Louis again, and everyone... um, like that I work with and everything keeps saying that we're like exactly alike except not. And now I'm just... It got me like really creepily thinking about like doppelgangers and just stuff like that. So it's not really a fun <laughs> fact, but it's just something that's been coming up a lot. <laughs> that is a fun fact. You have a fear of doppelgangers. That's I do. Really it's not funny. Like people are just like, oh, it's like a doppelganger. But I'm like, no, I took like a com- uh, comparative lit in college and I know like the origin of the word and it's creepy. It's 
yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> gotcha. My fun fact is that I feel bad for Jeffrey Dahmer. And <laughs> I know he likes to make a nice penis suit, but I think <laughs> that he just wanted somebody to help him and to catch him. And, you know, it's, it's really not his fault that he had a shrine of human bones. Mm. Um, but, but I know Brad has opinions about that. And that's just something for a whole other episode. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so my, All right, Brad. The, what about you? The murder case conspiracy that I'm obsessed with is the murder of Dr. Mary Sherman. She was murdered and police have classified her death as a murder due to stab wounds to her heart and burns from a fire in her apartment. Oh, did I forget to mention that her right arm and the right side of her rib cage were burnt to the point of disintegration? A fact that was not released to the media. Oh, did I also forget to mention the polio virus, the plot to kill Castro, the secret laboratory, Lee Harvey Oswald, JFK, and J. Edgar Hoover telling the New Orleans FBI not to investigate her murder? That's a short version. Now, That's all related? Yeah, to... it's all related. It's totally... Oh, God. And we'll have to talk about that. And it'll th- things that make you go, hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My unpopular opinion, fun fact, that goes against your Dahmer thing. Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> is guilty for the murder of Adam Walsh. Totally. Brad. It Brad. fits into everything that I'm... It, this is not a... It's, it's a kind of conspiracy thing, but it totally fits. So, we'll talk about that later at some point in time, too. We're going to do a whole Dahmer episode, but it's not going to be the stuff that you already know. We're going to do something different with Dahmer. Okay. All right. That yes, sounds interesting. We have to. I'm just calling it out. Okay. okay. Well, enough about us. Let's <laughs> dive into the murder of Mickey Bryan. Jasmine, tell us all about it. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So, um, I came across the Mickey Bryan murder case first through BuzzFeed's and Helen Peterson's retweet. Um, of ProPublica. ProPublica is, uh, I'm going to read verbatim their mission statement because it's amazing. ProPublica is an independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism with moral force. We dig deep into important issues, shining a light on abuses of power and betrayals of public trust. And we stick with those issues as long as it takes to hold power to account. That's amazing. ProPublica had partnered up with Pamela Koloff She's this painstaking, award-winning investigative journalist um, to shed new light on this case. And it's a two-part series. And at first I thought it was all going to be wrapped up. But then I found out that Joe Bryan's trial is coming up later in August. So it's not completely wrapped up. Anyway, um, at first glance, Mickey Bryan's unexplained murder seems to have come right out of an episode of Criminal Minds. A quiet, beloved fourth grade teacher is gruesomely murdered in her bedroom. Her husband, who was known for his expressiveness, friendliness, and warmth, quickly became the prime suspect, despite having been at an educational conference hundreds of miles away. Um, The entire town wanted to help solve her murder, and at first, everyone was on Joe's side. But then, thanks to the newfangled technology of forensic science, Joe seemed to become the undisputable suspect. Or was he? The readers quickly become privy to the fact that this isn't just an unsolved whodunit, it's a story of total injustice. The story unravels into a mouth-dropping discovery where faulty forensic science, unrelenting bias, and the unspoken prejudices of a small town all play significant forces in Joe's wrongful conviction and the abandonment of him by the entire town of Clifton. And like Jasmine mentioned, that ProPublica New York Times piece, the mm-hmm. two-parter by Pamela Koloff, is where we're getting most of 
the stuff that we're sharing with you today. So most of our research comes from that. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And in the post where we'll have the podcast posted on Pure Fandom, we'll link to it and any other sources because if you're interested in this case or even if, you know, you're not, you don't want to go digging too much further into it, you really, really should read her two-parter called um, Blood Will Tell. So Brad, walk us through Uh what went down with the Mickey Bryan murder. All right. On the night of October 14th, 1985, Mickey Bryan was shot to death once in the abdomen and three bullets to the head. Her body was discovered after 8 a.m. the next morning by coworkers who were worried about her not showing up for work. Mickey's husband, Joe, was informed at 10 a.m. At the time, Joe was 120 miles away at the Texas Association of Secondary School Principals annual conference in Austin. He had arrived there the previous day and called Mickey from the hotel room around 9 p.m. Investigators and police officials stayed from 3 p.m. until midnight on October 15th, scouring the crime scene. A 357, Mickey's gold wedding band, her watch, a diamond-studded ring, and $1,000 of cash from a seemingly untouched safety deposit box were missing. As for the gun, Joe told police that he kept the gun loaded with snake shot in the house and that Mickey typically kept this by the bed when she was alone. It was confirmed that the snake shot was what killed Mickey, but the weapon was never found. Now, my, my only weird thought I have about this is a 357 with snake shot in it. That's a big gun. I'm, it, yeah. It's, that's, that's a lot of gun to have snake shot for just, you know, killing snakes. I know. It's, I really don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, Joe did admit that he had that gun. It's just that they never found it. And and they even took helicopters, the police did, and looked all around the property, around the house. Mm. They did, like, an aerial search to see if they could find anything, like, clothing that was disposed of or the gun or anything related to the murder. And they never found the gun, and they never found anything else. Um but, yeah, I don't know. At least he admitted that he had the gun, right? Right. No, it's a good thing to admit. I mean, there's things that you should admit. Yeah, there was a gun in the house. I is The thing that struck me was like a three fifty seven. I was like, wow, that's a whole lot of gun to shoot a snake with. It's just... But it also... And it also makes you think, okay, whoever killed her, which I know we're going to get more into this in a little bit, but mm-hmm. it had to be spur of the moment and kind of an opportunistic thing and not planned. I mean, if the gun was there, she mm-hmm. was shot in the room, if the gun was sitting there, you would think that, I don't know, it was a crime of passion and not something pre- totally premeditated. But well, I don't that's know. just my opinion. If Well, because there's also no signs of forced entry in the house. And the back door was mm-hmm. locked, but the Texas stranger at the scene of the crime couldn't recall if it had been secured before or after the officers arrived. So, okay, and we'll talk about this later, but the complete ineptitude of all the Texas Rangers and police in this entire case from the beginning drives me nuts. The Texas Ranger could not recall whether it was locked before or after they came. Like, right. I don't, how is that possible? It's, I don't understand. Yeah, it, it's not very good policing, that's for sure. But with mm-hmm. that said, I mean, if it was unlocked and somebody came in and caught Mickey off guard or whatever, there could have been, she could have went for the gun, there could have been a struggle, and that's how the gun ended up being, you know, found. And that's how it was used. Very easily True. could have been over, uh, overpowered and take, have the gun taken away from her, too. 
but it's just a thought. It's just something to go out there. But there was an out-of-place cigarette butt that was discovered on the kitchen floor, mm-hmm. uh, which, mm, yeah, there's a thing right there oh, totally about that, not being tested. Um, and a pair of boxer shorts with semen were found in the trash. And there was a palm print on the headboard that was unidentified. Mm. Big things right there. We know from these things that, you know, sex was involved at some point in time, whether it was force or not force, we don't know that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say about that cigarette butt, because um, I'm not sure if we're going to mention this later, but both Joe and Mickey did not smoke. Right. And it was known that neither of them smoked. So people were wondering where did this cigarette come from? Well, there's a Texas Ranger involved in all of this, um, an investigator named Joe Wiley, I believe his name is. Yeah. And he had said that he knew the cigarette came in on the hit, on the boot of his shoe, on the heel of his shoe, that it came into the house that way, which is how do you, like, obviously you didn't right. preserve the crime scene. But anyways, um, yeah, but somebody also, tried to- um, I smoke and there is no way that you can track in a cigarette butt all the way from outside to the kitchen, regardless of where the kitchen is located in the house. Like, that is not a thing that happens. Regardless of how wet outside it is or how gross your shoe is, you cannot track in a cigarette butt into a house and anything like that. That's not possible. Well, that yeah. if it was tracked into the house, you would still look at it and go, okay, this was clearly on somebody's shoe because look at it. It's been stepped on and there's indentions on the filter or whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like, hey, look, there's a cigarette butt on the ground. You know, it's, it's yeah. one of those things. So I, the fact that that was overlooked, is it's kind of a big thing. And, you know, now... 30 years later, it could have been DNA on it. I don't know if they can still DNA test on it. I'm not sure where that where we lie on that whole process of this one. Um, uh-huh. I know. I, I, I think they did test it, and it was inconclusive, right, Jasmine? I know we'll talk yeah. about more down down the road here about what was tested and what wasn't because there were right. some weird things going on with that. But there is more about the cigarette butt coming and okay. the semen and the palm print. So. Right. So the first theory that everybody had there was that Mickey was the unfortunate victim of a burglary turned homicide. Mm -hmm. Unable to initially make heads or tails of the crime scene, the Texas Rangers requested the presence and expertise of Robert Thorman, a detective from nearby Bell County, as he was trained in forensic discipline called bloodstain pattern analysis. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about him and his expertise. Mickey was the second unexplained murder in Clifton with this, in the span of a few months. Four months earlier, in June 1985, the naked body of a 17-year-old girl, Judy Whitley, was discovered in the western part of town, covered in ligature marks. Yes, so this was a case just four months earlier. Whitley had been bound. She had been visibly sexually assaulted. It's... Good. It's important to note that Mickey had no signs of sexual assault. So we saw, you know, if sex was involved somehow, there was no signs of sexual assault on her. Or if somebody had intended to do something, it hadn't been done yet, if that makes any sense at all. So there was no signs of that on her. Well, so the case, go ahead. No, we do, we just know that we found the semen in the boxer shorts in the bathroom. Very mm-hmm. well, could have been a premature thing. Got excited, psh, done. Mm-hmm. Or it th- could have been Joe's from a couple day before days before. So, mm-hmm. reminder that her husband was in Austin at this time. He did show up to 
the conferences the next morning. He was there at 8 a.m. She was supposedly killed about 3.45 a.m., I think, is the time of death. Mm -hmm. So he would have, and he called her from the hotel room at about 9 p.m. the night before, and that is confirmed with records. Mm -hmm. So he would have had to... Well, we'll get into all that. And it was pouring rain also. And it it was pouring rain. He has like an eye disease or something where he can't see at night. Um, But anyways, he would have had to leave Austin. It's 120 miles away from Clifton. Um, And this is where we start to see in the case where things take a turn for Joe. Because he had been cooperating. And Chief uh, Robert Brennard of the Clifton PD, they had been working together on this. Um, but Friday, October 18th, 1985, Mickey's estranged brother, Charlie Blue, um, he came into town and he actually hired Bud Saunders, an ex-FBI turned private investigator to look into Mickey's death. So about four days after the murder, Mick, uh, Charlie Blue and Bud, the PI, asked asked Joe if they could borrow his car. So they're out driving around. They pull over. And for whatever reason, Bud opens the trunk or Charlie Blue opens the trunk. One of them opened the trunk. Apparently it had something to do with Charlie Blue getting mud on his shoes and wanting to clean it off. Right. Um, inside they found a box and in the box was a flashlight. And they looked at the flashlight and on the front of it, it looked like it had blood flecks on it. So... They decide, hey, this is blood, and they need to report it. Mm-hmm. So they take the flashlight in the car, and they go back to the um, to the uh, to Mickey and Joe's house because they said that they expected people from the police to be there. Nobody was there, so they make a phone call to the police chief to tell him what was going on. Um, they drive the car. This all takes a few hours. They could have just gone straight to the police station, which they did not. And when they were at Joe and Mickey's house, they went inside the house, even though they mm-hmm. didn't, even though they knew nobody was there, which kind of strikes me as an odd thing to do. Um, so they drive to the police department and the police chief actually searches the car and he makes note of everything that he finds in the car. Mind you, Joe has no idea that any of this is going on. So he has no idea that the car is being searched. So they return the car to Joe without saying anything. Oh. Um, and also, when they were doing the inspection of the car, they found no trace of mud at Dirty uh, Sanders' boots, you know, because mm-hmm. yeah. clean those off with a pocket knife later because we were going to stop in the middle of nowhere, but there's no mud in the car. Right. Yeah, this is which is ridiculous. Like, why is there absolutely no no sign of mud if it's on your shoe? It had to drip somewhere, but I guess it didn't. But I think it was just an excuse for them to look through the car and then just come up with a really shady, hinky excuse and then well, say, oh, "Hey, yeah, clean that, it all off." That part kind of strikes me as a thing. It's like, okay, you want to find something in the car, but you need a credible witness with you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not saying, but that's what it strikes me as. Okay, you got re, you know ex FBI guy who turned PI. Hey, check this out. Look what we found here. We're stopping for mud on my boots, and I don't know who's driving down the road and goes, "Oh, I got mud on my shoes. Let's stop here so <laughs> I can clean them off." It, yeah, it's. I know I have never done that in my life. <laughs> so no, uh-uh. 
Yeah. Well, you're Although, just not living. You're not living, Brad, <laughs> obviously. No, I, I just got, oh, I got snow in my boots. I better get in my car. There you know. <laughs> I think there was more to the story than that, but I don't, I don't recall from it the reason that they stopped and the mud got on the boots and everything. I think um, literally that's all that they told them. Yeah. I don't think they gave a reason why they had, there was mud on the shoe or why he was compelled to wipe it off. The, I don't think there was anything there. The, the quote yeah. on it was, at some point during the drive, according to Blue, he pulled over so that he and Saunders could relieve themselves. Well, I've done mm-hmm. that before. And Saunders ended up getting <laughs> mud on his boots. Okay, so I can understand that part now. <laughs> Looking for something to clean him off with, he opened the trunk and immediately spotted a cardboard box with a flashlight inside with a lens flacing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay. that's where they came up. Hey, look, those dark specks looks like blood. You know, you're at yeah. uh, the whole thing. Yeah. But the whole fact comes down later when they took the car in to be looked at so it was the trunk was inspected and photographed the car's clean interior was done uh, well the car's interior was clean and showed no trace of the mud that Saunders said he had on his boots so Mm -hmm. that's the whole there's a lot of red flags right there just with that part for me yeah but I mean everybody knows when you clean your boots off with a pocket knife they get squeaky clean obviously but the best part about that was after they looked at the car right they didn't impound it they just gave it back to blue once they were done searching it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's Um, there's so much room for error and is it illegal to do that i mean to do that to his car without his knowledge there was something not like properly followed here i'm certain and, like, I know that, Lindy, you're going to talk about the bag of money a yeah. little bit. But, like, also, like, I just don't understand why Joe is completely in the dark about this. And it, he wasn't, he was treated as if he was a suspect before he was, like, officially a suspect, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. And then also, like, the whole part is that Charlie is Mickey's estranged brother. Like, they're not close at all. And then after... um Blue, uh, Char- Charlie, uh, Charlie Blue um, returned the car to Joe. He flew immediately to Tampa. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why he wasn't flagged as anything. Yeah. After- because he's the murderer. He's the real murderer and he planted it in there. <laughs> that's the answer to the case. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the things. Like, hours later, he flew out, you know, it was, they dropped the car off at 4 a.m. And three hours later, Blue was on a plane back to Tampa. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, that's convenient, right? <laughs> I mean, it, that's yeah. a lot of one of those. But yeah, and nobody told Joe anything about it. No, uh, uh-uh. uh, he was completely in the dark until yeah. they brought him in. Yeah. So, Jasmine mentioned the bag of money, and this is the one weird thing that makes me question Joe because I don't mm-hmm. understand this. So if you remember, there was a safe in the house and Joe had said to the police um, right after Mickey's murder that there was they kept a thousand dollars of cash in that um, safety deposit box. Well, the box looked untouched. It had dust on it. There were no fingerprints. It looked Mm -hmm. like it hadn't been messed with in a while. So nobody knew where the money went. Well, Joe, after he gets his car back, calls up. Chief Brennard of the Clifton PD and says, hey, I found the bag of money in the trunk of my car. It's $850 in cash in there because I forgot that Mickey and I had taken the cash out to go shopping. Well, little did he know they had looked through the car and the police chief didn't report seeing any money or any bag in there. So 
I don't know how to make sense of that unless mm-hmm. someone is lying. And then why would they be lying? Mm-hmm. Well, so they didn't they didn't find it when they were searching the car, but the car was dropped back off to Joe. Yeah, but he said that it showed up in his car. Like he didn't say anything about finding it anywhere else and then putting it in his car. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Joe is lying about that, but I don't know the well, motive behind why he yeah. would. He, he could have very well forgotten all about it anyhow. I mean, there is a thing. His wife was just murdered. I mean, they had a really amazing relationship. They went everywhere together. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, was mm-hmm. a, he was a principal. She was a teacher. Their lives focused around teaching children and teaching in general. And they did mm-hmm. everything. So he loses his wife. He's devastated. And... I could see you know, if I lost my wife. I don't know what I, I would probably be in a fog for like a week or th- or a month or three months or something like that, mm-hmm. and just kind of wandering day by day because mm-hmm. you know it's not there. There's there's a lot that you can you know you can go with somebody not remembering stuff because your mind is so preoccupied with everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but the whole point is that the police had supposedly searched right. and like photographed the entire car and they didn't find this bag of money. So either it was somehow hidden somewhere that they just didn't have access to, or Joe had that money elsewhere and then put it in and then lied to the police chief that he had left in the car. There's just something about it. that doesn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's weird, but a thousand dollars is not a motive. Like that is not evidence. So it's not that much money, like in the scope of things. Like it's no, So on October 23rd, 1985, Joe was arrested on suspicion of murdering Mickey. And it was all because of that damn flashlight. Mm. And um, the town of Clifton had his had his back for a while. But after this all started coming about, there were rumors of his homosexual tendencies, which were just that they were rumors. And interestingly, the cops, whenever they were questioning people that um knew Joe and knew Mickey, they would always bring up this homosexual tendencies thing. Um, and and every by the way, yeah, the tendencies thing was the fact that he was like soft-spoken. He liked to play piano and they they found like a Chippendales um, pinup uh, calendar in his trunk. Yes. Literally, that's all they went off of. And yes. like uh, the Blood Will Tell um, series will talk about it. But after that, all the... Um, police records always had some sort of like scratching on the side done by the police officer or whatever saying um, he gay or just like gay question mark or like anything. And that was just the rhetoric that came out and they kept pushing it. And then that like soured everyone's opinion, but that there was nothing except for the fact that he was quiet and he liked to play piano. Yeah. They um, said because he liked to bake yeah. <laughs> or something stupid like that. Yeah. And when they asked him about the calendar or whatever, Joe said that he and Mickey had bought it as a gag gift for a friend. And I can't remember what friend they said it was, but he had an explanation for it. But they just ran with this whole homosexual tendencies thing. And they would question everybody that they interviewed about Joe. And people were like, you're ridiculous. He's not. And they just would not stop pushing that narrative. But because of that and because of the murder trial, his church turned on him. The town turned on him. And he basically had nobody. Um, in March 1986, he was put on trial and the trial lasted eight days because of the persuasive argument of a forensic expert and a crime lab chemist, Joe was found guilty and, um, 
Despite the distance between Austin and Clifton, Joe's eye condition that made it difficult to drive and the convoluted explanation of his ability to commit the crime, he was still found guilty. And his trial had been overturned on a technicality once um, after the sentence was already given, but they found him guilty again, even with the retrial. So he was sent back to Huntsville Penitentiary, and the more and more defeated Joe got, the more and more thrilled and aggressive the prosecution got. Um, I want to talk about the blood spatter analysis because this is a huge thing with the case. So keep in mind, in the 80s, blood spatter analysis was incredibly new. It was it was really brand new. Um, and Thorman, the expert who testified against Joe, was the expert that they used. Okay, so expert, this is the kind of training he got. He had 40 hours of blood spatter training. That's one week of training. And that made him an expert enough to testify and convict Joe. So the whole thing with the blood spatter that put Joe behind bars basically was having to do with the flashlight, which Thorman said was back spatter from Mickey's murder. So they kind of set up this whole scene. The prosecution set up this whole scene of, of the flashlight being at the murder scene saying that Joe had the flashlight in one hand and that he had the gun that he murdered Mickey with in the other. And they, I, I don't even know. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, blood spatter even today can be interpreted in so many different ways. It's not foolproof. I'm not saying it's crap science, but back then it was very new. And we're going to talk about later even more stuff going against this blood spatter analysis. But this is what basically hung Joe and convicted him. And it's slightly infuriating. And he had just had that uh, class not too long before this case happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, he had just taken it. And here's the thing. If you read that ProPublica article, um, she actually took the blood spatter course, right. the same 40-hour blood spatter course, and her instructor said to her, you won't walk out of here an expert, but you'll know enough to be dangerous. I mean, it does not make you an expert. Yes, you you could maybe testify in a case with your opinion, but there's so many ways to interpret it. And in no way should that be what convicts a person. Mm. But yeah. And it's just like they were saying that there were other forensic evidence that wasn't just a blood spatter that pointed everything away from Joe. Like there was human hairs on the car- cardboard box. There was latent prints lifted. But like none of this apparently had any weight compared to this really, really new blood spatter analysis. And it's insanely... I- frustrating and Mm -hmm. one of the things with the prosecution though that's their job is to make the jury believe that whoever they're up against is totally guilty so they bring in the expert okay you're an expert at blood splatter analysis you took a class cool you know how to do that the rest of the jury has no idea they maybe heard about it or whatever so they can prove enough that he says yes this is my belief that that is the blood splatter and this is how it all happened so if they can sell it to the jury, that's what like what happened is they go with that and they build that one spot. Mm-hmm. So they remember that later on down the line, and I think this is what happens. They just kept building stuff onto it, but they didn't know any better. And it's we have this like weird thing now with juries also, where if there's like a, a, 
a crime that takes place. Okay, they want DNA and they want uh, you know the blood splatter and they want all this all these forensics done, like computer forensics and everything else. And mm-hmm. why can't they have it done yet? It happens on CSI all the time. <laughs> right. That's reality. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's what we have now. Is everybody believes all this stuff that all the police and everybody has access to everything in the world. But I could see back in the 80s when we're going on this, so if you've already kind of labeled him as homosexual, right, you have some bad feelings going on in the jury already because we had the big AIDS epidemic going on in the 80s and everything else. So the more that the prosecution was putting against him, it was just slowly building on the jury. And even though they had all these bad information going out there they were selling it in a way i think it was really convincing the jury and that's you know we see what happened as a result yeah yeah but the thing is they had i mean the thing that always gets me is there's no motive i mean for him to drive from austin in the middle of a principal's conference go murder her and drive back right away and not leave any evidence behind i mean right. it's there's no motive and i think some people throw in a life insurance policy I don't think it was even that much. I don't know if you guys have the amount. I think it was $300,000 or something, yeah, but they weren't hurting. Yeah. yeah. They weren't hurting for money. They were a loving couple, whatever, whatever. Um, $300,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then there was also the unidentified palm print on the headboard of the bed mm-hmm. that we brought up before, which didn't match mm-hmm. Joe. And here's the thing. They could never determine if it was Mickey's. Because um, they were taken at the time of her autopsy. At the time her autopsy was performed, it was performed incorrectly and as a result could not be used for comparison. So her palm prints weren't taken right. So, Also, how that is that, if you're, if that is, how can you mess that up? How can you mess that up in an autopsy? Like, I just don't understand. Impressions of people's palms, isn't that like a normal pr- process? In Jasmine. Autopsy? Listen, it's all a conspiracy and um, nothing makes sense. So we can't explain it. I mean, things happen. Mistakes happen. That's common. But there's so much bullshit in this case. I don't have an answer for you. I just don't. Um, So Joe was convicted to 99 years in prison. So he's on his 33rd year. Mm -hmm. So they keep denying him appeals and retrials, even though he has been a model uh, prisoner and all of his fellow prisoner friends truly believe that he is innocent. He still maintains his innocence and he's never changed his story. So in 2016, Waco attorney Walter Reeves and Baylor law student Jessica Freud decided to look into the Brian murder case, troubled by every circumstance and the way that the case was handled, obviously because it was a shit show. Mm-hmm. Um, So with that and the advent of DNA testing and Joe's upcoming retrial in late August 2018, that's this year, guys. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. The case has been brought back to the forefront. So he has a chance for a retrial and we there is reasons why involving Mm -hmm. all of the evidence. So Um, and then something about his uh, bids for paroles that keep getting denied. Um, there, a lot of people are saying that it's because he refuses to show remorse, and apparently that's like the biggest um, determiner um, of you getting parole. But it's just like he did not kill 
Mickey, why would he be remorseful? It's just, and Joe has a heart condition right now. And if even like the prison officials are saying that he should be freed or like on parole or something, I don't know why that isn't taken into consideration either. But even in his spare time at, you know, he has a job at the jail and everything else, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he also teaches the other inmates, you know, so they can get their GEDs and he helps mm-hmm. out with everything. He's like a model prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the whole jury process, yeah, you got to admit remorse. I didn't do it. Why am I? I'm not remorseful. I did not do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. that, yeah, that goes on my whole other thing about prosecutors. Why, you know, they always get people with plea bargains, even though they're innocent because they threaten them with more. You know? mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about that Preach. another time too. Preach. Yeah. It's everything about this. Anyway, all right. So here are the most current updates. So in June 2018, two months ago, Joe's fourth bid of parole was denied. Uh, and while that does sound bad, again, um, there are two Texas lawyers who are working their asses off to free him. In July 2018, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, um, a nine-member commission created in 2005 to investigate the reliability of forensic science used in criminal cases investigate the allegations of professional negligence or misconduct and establish policies to improve the quality of forensic analysis used in criminal cases. Anyway, that commission reviewed the Mickey Bryan case and the validity of the scientific evidence used to convict him. And notably, the commission is made up of seven scientists, one prosecutor, and one defense attorney. And here's Um, the thing about this council real quick, this commission, their purpose is not to mark anybody like innocent or guilty. They are Mm -hmm. strictly for advancing forensic science. So they take cases like this and evidence and they reexamine and they're just trying to advance the field and then they report on what they find. So they're not hired by any attorney. They are Mm -hmm. strictly acting, acting on their own. So that's important important to keep in mind with them as well. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so the really interesting finding that the commission found uh, was uh, it cast serious doubt on the reliability of evidence used to convict Brian, especially the bloodstain pattern analysis that played a key role in Brian's trials. The Waco Tribune um, Herald in July 2018 reported this, um, and their finding specifically was from Celestina Rossi, She's a bloodstain pattern analysis from the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office Crime Lab. And she reported to the commission that the testimony about blood spatter was wrong and not supported scientifically. Um, and her claims um, has the potential to significantly impact Joe's upcoming August 20th hearing. And it actually can result in either the declaration of Joe's innocence or the recommendation for a new trial at the Court of Criminal Appeal so that it just gets higher instead of kind of recycling through the same cycle. And um, it's really uh, like what uh, Lindy had said. So Miss Rossi, she is a veteran crime scene investigator, and she uh, is a frequent testifier as a prosecution witness in trials around the state. And she also, basically her role is to strengthen standards across the discipline. So if Joe does get um, declared innocent or just anything like that, that's great. That's not her main reason of being there. It's just to make sure that there is standardization and um, that everything follows that going forward. Yeah. She straight up said if somebody was convicted based on this explanation of this bloodstain pattern, they should get a retrial immediately. Mm -hmm. Like she Mm -hmm. said that it was 
I mean, you can read her quotes. Um, we'll have all of our sources in the article, but she basically said straight up, this is absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Joe's got a hearing coming up. I, I don't remember what date it is. It's at the end of this month and it's August 20th. August yeah. 20th. So mm -hmm. look here and see if he gets a retrial. Um, so we shall see. About, about two more weeks from now, we'll find out what we get out of that. And yes. We'll, we'll bring this up on one of our next podcasts, too. Oh, here's the other thing that we forgot to say. Speaking of the blood stains, mm -hmm. the flashlight was retested. Um, I cannot even remember when. Do you remember when it was retested? The blood on it was retested and they couldn't even conclude. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, yeah. In 2011, um, Rees petitioned the court for DNA analysis of the cigarette butt, the yes. flashlight, and the semen-stained under underwear that was found in the wastebasket. The results uh, Rees received in the summer of 2012 yielded no information. So unfortunately, no DNA profile could be obtained from the cigarette butt or the underwear and the partial profile uh, fingerprint on the lens of the flashlight was too limited for a meaningful interpretation. But one detail did stand out, and it's a sing single sentence about the flashlight, and it says, a presumptive test for blood was negative on the lens. In other words, <laughs> the test could not confirm that what the blood flex supposedly on the flashlight, it was they couldn't confirm that it was actually blood. Say what? Listen. Yeah. Okay, so the first time they tested this damn blood spatter on mm -hmm. the lens, they said it was type O, which mm -hmm. was... Half the world has type O? Yes. Vicky yeah, has type O blood, different. but mm -hmm. so does everybody else. Yeah. So they mm -hmm. couldn't even prove that it was hers. Now, in a retest, they can't even prove that it's blood. So mm -hmm. between all of this retesting stuff and Rossi's new analysis... This is all going to play a factor in him possibly being able to get a retrial later this month. So we shall see. But here's the kicker. And this is kind of conspiratorial. But <laughs> also my theory is also probably fact because I'm very good at being a detective from my living. <laughs> okay. So this opens up a whole other can of worms. Okay. Do you remember the Whitley murder from four years or four months before Mickey's? Mm -hmm. Here's how it could tie in. So Dennis Dunlap, a former Clifton cop who resigned one month after the Whitley murder and promptly moved down of, out of town. He was always considered a suspect by the police chief at the time. His name was Vanderhoof. I think his name was. He's mm -hmm. passed away now. Um, R.I.P. Because... <laughs> He apparently, well, he did make comments to several people about Whitley's murder, some very suspect comments. He had a history of violence against women, mm -hmm. and evidence from the Whitley murder went missing from a police locker when he was still there before he had moved, and it kind of indicated an inside job. But Vanderhoof had always suspected that Dunlap was responsible for the Whitley murder, but he never felt like he had sufficient grounds to question him. So nobody ever asked because, you know, why would anybody ever follow up on that? It's just a murder of a young girl. Um, <laughs> in 1996, Dunlap was found hanging in his garage. He had committed suicide and left a note behind. And in this note, he had mentioned being a suspect in the Whitley murder from Clifton. As of now, the Clifton police, they consider this case closed. They consider Dunlap to be the murderer of Whitley. And if you read the ProPublica 
Uh, blood will tell. There are a lot of details about why Dunlap is definitely Whitley's murder, and you will agree once you read it. We don't have time to go into all of it, but trust me, he did it. Okay, so what does this have to do? No. He is. He's a horrible human being, and he also, there's stuff with duct tape. Just read it, okay? Um, okay, so what does this have to do with Mickey? So first of all, Vanderhoof, now deceased, he had told a newspaper editor and reporter, Leon Smith, who was investigating the murder of Mickey, that Dunlap had once bragged to him about being with the school teacher the night she was killed. And he said that is what Dunlap had told Vanderhoof. So Leon Smith, you'll read about him in the ProPublica article too, but he's this wonderful newspaper editor and journalist who started investigating the, the Mickey and Whitley murders as well. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from the ProPublica, and this is about Smith, the journalist who I just mentioned. He was actually granted access to the Brian and Whitley files from the police station while he was doing his investigation. And this is what they reported. Buried inside the banker's boxes were records and transcripts of the interviews law enforcement conducted during its posthumous investigation of Dennis Dunlap. It was while poring over these files that Smith discovered a, rev a revelatory passage in an interview with one of Dunlap's ex-wives who told investigators of his terrifying, unpredictable behavior. He shot her children's rabbits to death. Hello, serial killer alert. Mm -hmm. um, and once threatened to disfigure her. He also told a few chillingly specific details about the Whitley murders years after the fact because he was guilty. When asked whether her husband had ever spoken of her of other homicides, she told investigators that he had bragged improbably of having an affair with Mickey Bryan. He also claimed to have been with her shortly before she was killed. Quote, all he told me was that he dated her. Dunlap's ex-wife stated, he dropped her off that night or that evening, and they had said they were going to break up. Neither investigator had asked her a single follow-up question, quickly returning to the subject of Whitley. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They had the... Per everyone, well, the three of us are keep saying on and on, what could possibly be Joe's motive? And then we have this monster, like Dunlap right here, with all the motive, with all the history, and no one followed up anything with him. Well, it could, it could have very well been not a not a following up, but a more or less covering up because he mm -hmm. was in the force there. So it kind yeah. of makes law enforcement look bad when you have one of your own who's busy killing people. So why don't we just send him to a different city? Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Let's just get rid of him. Well, I thought that, but the police force was all, they kind of all came together saying that he was responsible for Whitley's. So why would he try to cover up, why would they try to cover up him murdering Mickey, I think it was just a huge oversight. Like, I literally think someone just dropped the ball and didn't follow up. And tell me, is he too decayed to exhume <laughs> him and get his palm print? Okay? Is he? I have no idea. I have no idea. And, like, we have, like, much better technology now. We probably would disturb him not that much to get something. I don't know. Brad, is I'm, all his skin gone? Uh, yeah, I think it's long enough that you're not going to get a palm print off of him. Dang Not it. really? But wouldn't he have a hand, well, fingerprint? 
listen, all I'm saying is he probably murdered her. I don't know. And then some people say, okay, well, maybe if this is true, if he had had an affair just to play devil's advocate, perhaps mm -hmm. Joe had found out that night. So let's just say he was telling the truth. He was with Mickey Bryan that night. And she was going to call it off. What if she had said something to Joe about it on their telephone call? And he drove there out of rage. And it was a crime of passion. I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying that's what happened. But that's a motive against him, I guess. Mm -hmm. But again, it doesn't deserve for him to be convicted because Dunlap and anything involving Dunlap and Mickey was never looked into anyways. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, he's, he's totally, uh, while we're, you know, talking there, I was looking it up how long it does take for her body to decompose in the grave, uh, <laughs> which is really bad on, you know, search engines. I'm <laughs> right, yeah. I've been flagged multiple times anyhow. So if you're buried without a coffin, 8 to 12 years for to decompose to a skeleton. If okay. you're in a uh, coffin, depending on what it is, it will slow down the process. 30 years, or, when did he die? 1996. 22 years ago, I just did the math. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not. That's that's hard to say. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit. I don't. I don't think there's probably enough to do anything, though. Honestly. Mm. I mean, he was probably cremated. Our luck, because the police station was like, cremate him, get rid of the evidence. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I wouldn't shouldn't. say there would be enough evidence. To, I wouldn't think you could. If they needed DNA, they could get DNA out of them. Uh, yeah, Prince, no. There were two. I don't know. If, I can't remember if we said this, Jasmine. I can't remember if you said this, but in the box in Joe, um, in the back of his car, and that mm -hmm. they had found two hairs that didn't belong to Joe or Mickey. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Um. Let's see. Uh, two human hairs found in the cardboard box in the trunk did not match either of the Bryans. Oh, that's all we have. Listen, um, that's Dunlap's for sure. They need to just <laughs> exhume him. Get all the DNA out because then I think they said the the semen in the boxers was inconclusive. Mm -hmm. I'm just yeah. saying. Uh huh. There's just so many aspects of this that nothing was followed up. Like 13 fingerprints didn't match either of the Bryan, so they didn't think to pursue that. Um, there were just I I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the part. I mean, with the fingerprints there. Okay, maybe they were left in the house or whatever, but it was still there. Those are things that you're going to catalog. Those are things you're going to look at. And they were thrown out because they didn't have blood on them. So, mm -hmm. because, you know, it, whenever you're involved in a murder or something, your hands are always bloody all the time, right? <laughs> no, you're not. It's There's points between there. And so, yeah, why weren't those uh, cataloged? The yeah. palm print, yeah, we still had the issue with the palm print. But even with the palm print, right, mm -hmm. you would think, and this is just me, and I'm sure it didn't, I don't know, maybe they thought about that. You have a palm print, you can measure and see if it even comes close to Mickey's hand. If it did, well, okay, you go with that. If it's a man's hand, it's going to be bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That should yeah. be easy enough to look at it and go, mm, yes, no. Yeah. You know, in, uh, in, we don't know whose it is, but it wasn't hers. Yeah. You, you should be able to and tell like, these things. For sure. And it's just like what we're saying, like for sure, could be like speculation and stuff. But it's like a lot of the so-called evidence that committed Joe was speculation as well. Right. Like it was like you had said, Brad, like they were building a story and ramping it up. 
and just making sure that no one trusted Joe again. Exactly. I just don't understand why it wasn't done on the other side, on him. And it wasn't a hard thing to do. I mean, as soon as they brought up the homosexual part, you know, oh, my God, like I said before, we had the big AIDS epidemic going on. It's the Mm -hmm. 80s. People aren't as tolerant. He was a teacher. Oh, my God, he's around kids. Doesn't Mm -hmm. go in the bathroom. There's a lot to build on that. So you throw that out there. And they do it now with cases. Like, the news is horrible about it. This is, uh, there was one on tonight. Um, I think I messaged y'all about it. It was on Inside Edition. So there, oh, yeah. there was a missing uh, woman who was in another state. I didn't find out where it was. But there's a ex-pig farmer who they think is a suspect. And, like, the news stations are out interviewing this guy going, why don't you take the lie detector test? One, mm-hmm. never take the lie detector test. <laughs> it's not – you can't use it in court – so worst thing you want to do is go down to the police station, take it and fail it, and they book you because they have you know reason to book you. Yeah. But yeah. that's that you can build cases against people before they're even guilty. It's you know getting it out there, and you just have to convince everybody else that who you think is guilty is guilty, and they did a really good job with that. Yeah. Which they leads did. us thirty years it, later going, why wasn't any of this stuff tested? Yeah. Yeah. My final thought with it is just. Whether or not he did it, the fact that he was found guilty on the whole blood spatter crap, I mean, there was no concrete evidence, no concrete motive. I just kind of hope for the sake of justice that he's granted this retrial and they actually take a look at the the evidence again, because I think he at least deserves deserves that. I mean, we'll never know what actually happened, but... I'm just hoping for a retrial because it just seems like that at least is deserved after all this time. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it's, you know, with the whole him going up for a parole, he's done it a couple times. So when he goes four. up, he doesn't, four. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't show remorse. Okay. You get that after the second one, right? Well, let me mm-hmm. maybe show remorse on the next one. Maybe I can get parole. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't do anything, why would you, you know, I don't think he did it. And that's just my unprofessional opinion on it. Based on everything else that we've, you know, my, my armchair investigation, based on everything that we've read, all the, all the facts that we've seen, and, mm-hmm. every, and how it points away from him, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a leap for me to go, he drove back and drove, you know, he drove from Dallas, drove back, and maybe he found out she was having an affair or whatever, but I, I just don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's just like, yes, 120 miles, it could be done, what, in three hours or whatever? Like, there there are a couple of things, like, hinky things. Like, Lindy, you had said about the bag of money um, and just everything like that. But all I can think is that if he had actually killed Mickey, then he is literally the best actor in the world. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And just, and to keep that level of, confusion and like betrayal and stuff until like now that's an incredible like acting um job um but also like sure in like um tv shows and like movies we see these like mild-mannered men who get caught up in fits of passion and like kill this victim or whatever nothing about joe lines up with that um and i don't know it's just it's just, I think, if it, even if it does end up being him, which I really, really don't think it is, um, it's 
everything that was done to d- decide that he was guilty just completely overshadows whether he had actually done the crime. Everyone involved, I think, was guilty in just treating him completely like injusticely. I, nothing was done properly. Nothing. Um, that's not. Yeah. So what you're saying is we all agree that it was actually Dunlap. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's the answer to the case. No, we, mm-hmm. we don't know. But we'll definitely next time we do a podcast after his hearing, mm-hmm. we will update you guys and, and see if he was granted that new trial and if the evidence is going to be looked at another mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, I do lead okay. towards Dunlap. I can't prove anything because he's dead so it's kind of hard (laughs) there's no you know there's nothing there but with everything else that we know about him it does lead you there to you know especially some of the comments that he made it's kind Mm -hmm. of where you go to and you could see at the point in time you know dirty cops or it's a thing it happens before Mm -hmm. things being covered up to you know we'll push us over this way I could see it happening. I'm just, but it's something that you'll never be able to prove. The only way uh, Joe can come off good is to have the evidence that was used to try him be proven incorrect. Yeah, completely overturned. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing we can do. And that's going to be hard because, I mean, Joe's defense has actually been asking for to retest DNA evidence and mm-hmm. relook at stuff. And it keeps getting blocked yes, by the yeah. prosecution. So um, they're actually hoping this time that they don't block it anymore, that with um, Rossi's new findings, that that will be enough to actually grant him a retrial. So time will tell. Mm-hmm. All right. I think oh, we have everything. Now I just got why it was called the... Uh, Pamela Coloff article is called Blood Will Tell. I'm an idiot. That's fine. <laughs> okay, Jasmine, yeah. thanks for yes. catching up with us. <laughs> okay, we're glad you made it here. Yeah, yeah. Not only will time tell, but blood will tell. Yes, because yes. it's all about the blood. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. All right, well, I think, um, I think that we covered everything, but again, that ProPublica article just go read it. We're going to link to it and it'll give you all of the details that we didn't have time to. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Check that out. Yeah. Jump into Reddit. I mean, go all the way. It's, just look it up. There's a lot of stuff out there. And especially with the case coming up again here in like two weeks, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of stuff out there. So just make a Google alert and have it send you stuff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. So thanks for listening tonight. We are Pure Fandom. Pure Fandom is a website where pop culture geeks and nerds can read recaps, react to TV shows and movies in near real time, and play in all the fandoms they are involved in. Um, make sure to check out the rest of the goodies on Pure Fandom's YouTube channel, as well as the website, which is chock full of amazing content. The website is www.purefandom.com. We've also got a Twitter, which is at uh, pure underscore fandom, and an Instagram as well. They share the same handle. And a Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash be pure fandom, one word. And we are all on Twitter as well. Um, my Twitter is at blueberry jelly. Lindy is Lindy R. Smith. And Brad is at Brad ZB. And I'm really horrible on Twitter, so I'm not on there all the time. <laughs> 
same here. And I even added my Twitter handle in here and I spelled my own name wrong. So that's oh. good. <laughs> oh, I actually didn't even read that. <laughs> so I'm glad you actually got it right. I can't be counted on for much here, guys, including my own name. So <laughs> that is it. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you have any suggestions for cases that you would like us to cover, mm-hmm. to research, shoot us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and uh, we'll check it out. And if you have any um, different thoughts about this case, if you think he's guilty, if we're missing a big chunk and you want to share it with us, shoot us a message too because we would love to hear it. Or feel free to leave a message in SoundCloud if you're listening directly there. Just drop a note in there. We'll get it. We're going to read it, and then we're going to critique it, and then we're going to tell you that you're wrong because we we know everything. No, just kidding. No. (laughs) Just kidding. All right, guys. Until next time. Bye. See ya. That's it for this episode. Head on over to purefandom.com for more awesome content.